Hello, and welcome to the LYF podcast. This podcast is provided to you by the Love Yourself Foundation, which is an organization here spreading the message of love and more specifically self-love and the powerful ripple effect that has not only in building a better relationship with yourself, but also with your community and with our beautiful planet. We're here to tell you that we're all one. All living beings are connected to each other, to the universe. So we're going to be talking about important topics like mental health, environmental issues, and tying it all back into the self and ways that you can not only empower your relationship with yourself, but also empower your relationship with your community and with our beautiful planet. So if you like what you hear, please hit subscribe. You can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at the LY Foundation. You can also check out our website at the lyfoundation.org. And we have a very special new addition to what we're doing. We now have a membership program called the Lifeline Membership Program, which offers support calls, group support calls, free admission to our events, workshops, specialized merch. So we also have special discounts going for students, teachers, frontline workers. So if you want to hear more about this, please go to our website at the LY Foundation slash membership for more info. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the LYF podcast. Monica here, and I'm super excited. This month, I am interviewing Paul Benedict. He's here with us today. He is a yoga teacher here in Las Vegas. When I first met Paul at Kintsugi Yoga Studio, I want to say last year, I thankfully, Adam, the owner of Kintsugi, messaged me and was like, Monica, we have an extra ticket for this meditation workshop. Do you want to come? And it's funny because I had just been thinking about that earlier that day, how I really wanted to go to a meditation workshop. (laughs) And so it worked out perfect when I remember I got the text. Absolutely. And then I went to Paul's class and it was so great because I feel like at that point I needed a little reminder. I think sometimes when we can get super disciplined and yoga and meditation, we forget sometimes why we even do what we do. And it was such a good refresher for me because I needed to hear it. And I I was about to go to Spain for a few months. So it just, it came at such a good time and his knowledge and wisdom was just exactly what I needed to hear. And I've been able to take a couple of other of his classes and just feel like he has such amazing wisdom to share. And so I'm excited to get Paul to chat with us today. So hi, Paul. Hey, Monica. So good to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So the first question I always ask folks when I have an interview is what is it that you love about yourself and why? And then how has this quality helped you in your life so far? And maybe it's been something that's evolved or it could be something new too that you're just contemplating now. What do I love about myself and why? And how does it help? That's a good one. (laughs) Let's see. I think I value my ability to connect with people of all different kinds. I'm able to build rapport with people that are different from myself. And I think that's really cool to be able to do because I I can create some comfort and some happiness and some good energy in other people. That's, I feel without sounding too corny, that's my purpose. Like one of my big purposes in life is to to create some some good energy in the world, right? Some happiness. (laughs) So being able to maybe chameleon, I'm going to say a word that might not be a real world, a word. I can chameleonize myself and I can mm. fit in with different kinds of people that aren't necessarily uh, from the same walks of life, for example. That's helped me a lot. My career that's provided me with income for the past 18 years as what's well, real estate. And it's very appropriate in that realm of, of business because connecting with people is what it's all about. Real estate is a people game. You, you can know every single neighborhood, every builder. You can even know how to build a house from scratch, know how to make offers and close escrows. But if you can't connect with people, all that knowledge is completely useless. So that skill has helped me in my real estate career. But now that I've shifted a lot of my energy in life in, into teaching meditation, yoga, and breathing techniques and spiritual development, I'm realizing that skill is as applicable and as powerful in this realm as well. So being able to communicate, um, provide concepts that are foreign to a lot of people and esoteric and not not readily known in the world and having that land and having it make sense to students, that's been a huge thing. So I've found some value with that skill set in teaching yoga too. 
That's so great. And it's true. I feel like no matter what work we do, and even if it might look different, it should connect in all realms and all, in all avenues. I sometimes will do some event work. And like you said, it's about connecting with people, right? It may not look exactly in the same way all the time, but just having that translate no matter what role you're doing is what's important. So I love that. So now tell us a little bit about how yoga came into your life and what was it about yoga that really lit a light bulb in you to want to keep pursuing and then teach? Like the way you framed it, what about it lit a light bulb in me? That's cool. Because that kind of reminds you of what felt so good and recalling that experience. It feels good to recall those experiences that when the light bulb is lit. Let's see, contrary to, to the path most yoga teachers take, I found yoga through, through the spiritual side of it. And my, funny enough, one of my real estate clients was a, a Buddhist meditator. And when we work with the clients to buy or sell houses, we spend a lot of time with, with our clients. And I wanted to learn about meditation, learn about what it means. Like my mind always wants to know why <laughs> ask my mom. She's don't ask why just do it. <laughs> but why? So I would ask my client, I would ask her, tell me about this meditation thing. What are you actually doing? Are you like chanting something? Are you singing? Are you worshiping someone or, and what happens like specifically what happens? And she's like, I don't know how to explain this properly, but I know somebody else who does. And she introduced me to the man who would become uh, my spiritual mentor. And he's still my closest friend and spiritual brother today. His name is Terry Hunt. And we have since co-written a book together. And he taught me how to teach, basically. Ha taught me how to teach spiritual concepts. And I look up to him and hold him in the highest regards. And he's here in Las Vegas. So she, my client back in 2007, this was, introduced me to, the, to Terry Hunt, who was teaching something called theosophy in here in Las Vegas. Theosophy is the comparative study of science, religion, philosophy. It's an open-minded investigate. It's an open-minded inquiry into, into life through the avenues of science, religions, and, and philosophy. And when I met him and heard him speak about these kind of really deep subjects, I'm like, where have you been all my life? Where has this information been on my life? Yeah. And that's the light bulb. I, I was raised Christian, not Catholic, but Eastern Orthodox, <laughs> which is similar in its strictness in certain ways and doctrine. But I was just doing the religion thing because that's what my parents told me to do. It wasn't my, you know, wasn't my choice as a kid to go to church. I was just going, but there were no light bulbs being lit <laughs> th through, through religion. The light bulb was lit when I found theosophy and like I mentioned, it's an open-minded inquiry into life and what the heck is our purpose here and where'd we come from? Where are we going? That is what excited me. Like, wow, these answers that I'm getting make so much sense because I had asked the questions. My brain wanted to know all the whys back in church. And I'm sure a lot of our list, a lot of your listeners can resonate with this if, if they were brought up in religions. Sometimes the answers are unsatisfactory that we get for who is God? Where is he? What, what's the purpose of all this that we, the prayers and what happens after, you know, death? Do we just go and live in this angelic kingdom forever? And then what? Anyway, I would ask those questions and the answers didn't, I don't know, didn't satisfy me. <laughs> but when I started studying life from a different spiritual perspective, I, I was very much pleased with the answers. So I'm, I'm, let's see. So when I met him, that was 2007. I knew immediately that I wanted to learn to teach like he does because he was explaining concepts like karma, reincarnation, transcending the physical brain with consciousness. Wow, these are deep topics that I would love to be able to teach myself. So I knew immediately I'm going to study with him and learn how to do what he does. So in 2009, we had our first joint teaching venture where we taught a basic theosophy book, but we coincided it with Eckhart Tolle's book called A New Earth. Mm -hmm. And it just so happened that that was right after Oprah Winfrey did her big, she, she did a 10-week webinar with Eckhart Tolle. I think it was 2008 or nine. It was after that happened. We used her webcast with Eckhart Tolle. We used his actual book and we used a theosophy book, a basic introductory. And we taught a 10-month course on all these things. And it was nerve wracking for me and stressful and I was anxious, but we did it. And it was the best thing that I'd ever done in my life. And that was all before I had ever done a downward dog. I, I didn't, the word yoga 
was brought up in those topics and teachings, but not from a perspective of physical asana practice. I didn't do that until, let's see, a few years later, maybe 2010-ish, you know, let's see, I probably took a Zeke Vincent class over at Yoga Sanctuary. I took a few Greg and Susan home classes, Holmes classes at uh, Vegas Hot. And then I took, I, I somehow just realized it was time to do a, a, a yoga teacher training because I knew that was the physical movements and poses, postures were part of the theories that I'd been studying already, the spiritual stuff. Zeke Vincent happened to be offering a 200 hour program in fall of 2013. I did that, got a teaching certification, got thrown into the fire right away at the yoga sanctuary, started teaching physical yoga and the light bulbs just kept being lit. And I just knew, I just knew that was my life purpose. And yes, I still had my career of real estate and I was still doing that and that paid my bills and everything, but it was very clear that yoga was paying my soul, mm. <laughs> even though it didn't pay the bills, it mm. paid the soul. So that was good enough for me. The rest is history. Yeah. I love that you said that. It's so true. I understand that feeling a lot. I've another person that I've interviewed here in the past mentioned how important it is to do what you love, whether you're getting paid or not sometimes, even if it's not full-time to be able to at least have some of your time dedicated to a passion for that purpose, really nourishing your soul, because that's something that you really can't always pay with money. Yeah, I'm glad that you said that, especially for folks that maybe are exploring, right, what their purpose might be. And it, it sometimes it's hard to really understand. But as long as you follow what it is that brings you that passion, the answers come. They may not come immediately, but they will come. So now tell us a little bit. I know you, in class you've mentioned about different things that you've written. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? When Terry Hunt and I did our first joint teaching experience in 2009. It was what I mentioned a moment ago. We synthesized several different teachings in, into a presentation that, that we created ourselves, basically. And that was the foundation for the book that we actually wrote. And we realized after that 10-month course that we presented, sometimes we had three people in class, sometimes we had 30. It, was, it varied wildly. And we realize that some of the information isn't going to resonate with people, but sometimes it really is. And everything works out the way it, 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 it is supposed to. Just like you said, answers always come. They, they do. Sometimes a student will get all the answers they need in one class and they're fulfilled for a long time. And others are more voracious and they want to absorb as much as they possibly can. So we wanted to put the realizations that we got through that course into a book. And we realized, oh my gosh, this might be something that hasn't been taught before. So just to reframe how we did it, we put together, we, we, we combined yoga philosophy from Patanjali who wrote, who compiled the yoga sutras. We used Patanjali, we used Eckhart Tolle a lot and we referenced him a lot. He's brilliant. He's a modern day yoga guru in our opinion. We used the teachings of theosophy and we also used our own realizations, revelations, intuition, our own buddhic, receptor <laughs> receptors and wrote a book it's called ancient wisdom for a new age a practical guide for spiritual growth and we self-published it in 2012 and we've used that for the basis of other study courses that we've done and there's one coming up at true fusion later this year it hasn't been announced yet because it's still being formulated but there's going to be another class with that book as one of the foundations as well but our whole goal is to take these somewhat abstruse kind of vague spiritual concepts that don't have a lot of concrete direction or information and make it concrete, give people some tangible stuff to actually do today, right now, to start to maybe modify your life. If there's some things you want to change, here's some specifics. Here's some things to actually look at and do. Yeah. Otherwise, some of the ancient texts, they're, they're not very specific. And plus they're written in ancient language. Mm -hmm. They're not always applicable or understandable to the modern day reader or seeker, if you will. So that was our intention with the book. Since then, we've started the writing um, of a second book. And the second book is our own commentary on the Yoga Sutras. That's not anywhere close to being done yet, though. We're going slow on that one. And the, the, there have been blog posts and things. And I had 
the, the, the really cool opportunity to do 100 days of meditation during lockdown in 2020 after COVID hit or dirt while COVID hit in March of 2020. And those, and this is specifically to all of your listeners, please go onto my Instagram and use those. They're all there. 100 meditations. They're all different and they're all there. So right when lockdown happened in Vegas, it was like March, I don't know, 12th or something of 2020, one of those days. I realized that people are going crazy out there. People need some grounding. And since I do a meditation in the mornings by myself, why not share it? So I thought, let's just turn on Instagram live and I'll talk through what I'm doing and whoever wants to join can join. So I did that. Like literally the first day when our shit locked down, pardon my language, <laughs> when it, I felt weird and I'm like, this is weird. Let's try to bring some community together. So I did it the first day. Some people joined. They didn't really know what they were joining. Then the, I, I'm, the second day I did it, I'm like, this is a thing. Let's keep doing this. And we did it every single day without missing a single day for 100 days. And they're all there. So please go onto my Instagram and pick one, use one or do all of them, whatever. But they're all there and just turn around in the background. There are even some yoga nidras that you can do to help you fall asleep if you're anxious at night or if you wake up at two in the morning with your mind racing. There are a couple of yoga nidras. Just turn it on and just listen. And it's like a guided relaxation. Yeah. <laughs> That's so great. I we When lockdown happened, we did that too. We just started, we just got on the IG live and just started to support however way we could. And so I love hearing other people that did the same to help people. It was such a strange time. It still is, right? <laughs> We're still going through it. Hopefully think, things seem like they're finally getting better and hopefully that's the trend. But I wanted to ask you a lot of times, and I'm sure you've heard this a lot, especially being a teacher, when people say, oh, I, I don't know how to, I, I can't meditate or it's too hard. Or they say, oh, my mind, I can't meditate because my mind is always racing. And you're like, that's like the idea, right? So uh, can you, what's your take on it? Like when you hear that, what is, what's a, what's an answer you can give to people if that's how they feel? I'm not sure if you could tell what my body language just did when you started talking about that, but I got really giddy because this is like <laughs> something I love talking about. I, I love that question because it's such a, a common mis, misunder, misconception about what meditation actually is. And I love just dispelling some of this like right off the bat for anyone who asks. So, so from my, oh, before I say this, I should probably give a disclaimer. So this, <laughs> some of the things I say might, you might not agree with that or your listeners may not. And that's totally fine. We are all unique and we all are super, we, we sh, I would encourage us all to be aware of what we believe and what resonates. And if something I say doesn't resonate, it's totally fine. And I'd like to have dialogue somehow. I'd like you to share your opinion somehow, or if anyone can comment somewhere. So these are the, the things I'm sharing is what I've learned, what I've synthesized, what works for me and what works for some people, but certainly not all people. So just take it. If it doesn't make sense, it's okay. Just leave it. If it does make sense, put it in the back of your mind. Maybe it'll come up at some point. Maybe it'll be useful. So from what I've learned and, and what I've practiced, let me just say this, and it's quite simple. Meditation is not making your mind go blank. It's absolutely not just sitting and being blank or all of a sudden calm somehow and peaceful. It is absolutely not that. Quite honestly, that's not even the goal. The, the goal is not to make your mind go blank. That's not. <laughs> what the goal is to focus the mind, learning to focus. And Patanjali says this so brilliantly in his Yoga Sutras teaching. Some of us have heard, some of you, if you're a yoga teacher listening, or if you've studied any kind of yoga philosophy, there's something called Ashtanga Yoga or the eight-limbed path, which is taught in, in, yoga, in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. And the last three limbs of the eight-limbed path are learning to focus your mind, learning to keep your mind focused, and then transcendence, which he calls samadhi. And when your awareness leaves your physical body and you access a different dimension, that's transcendence or samadhi. That's reaching, reaching a place where the, the coarse emotions and turmoil and lower feelings, lo lower nature emotions don't exist. And that's why it's a place of bliss. But let me repeat that. Learning to focus the mind, then learning to keep the focus for an extended period, that's when that transcendence and that realization happens of, wow, there are other realms here that I don't have to be stuck down in this world where there's crap happening all the time and things seem unfair and hard. So that process of learning to focus, learning to maintain the focus and then transcendence, that is 
how I teach meditation. How do you focus the mind? That's the first thing. There are so many ways to focus the mind. If you're a religious person, maybe you have prayer, a prayer that you say that can help your mind stay focused. If you grew up in a Catholic church, maybe you were exposed to the rosary beads ever. The rosary beads, funny enough, it's this, they have the same intention as a mala in, from the yoga tradition. That's a way to focus the mind. If, you're, if you've been given a mantra from a teacher, whether you practice transcendental meditation or you have a yoga guru who's given you a personal mantra from a different tradition, repeating the mantra over and over is a way to focus the mind. Sitting quietly and slowing down your breath and just noticing the process of inhale and exhale, that is a way to focus the mind. Maybe if you resonate with your heart center a lot or your third eye center or another place in your body where you feel your intuition. Some people say, I get it in my gut. I get a gut feeling. Focusing on that place is a way to focus the mind. So let me reframe it. To me, that is meditation. All the things I just said, that's meditation. And yes, there are higher levels of it for advanced meditators, but how the heck do you just sit and make your mind go blank when we have drama in our lives, when you have a relationship problem, when you have a challenge at work, when you stressed out in traffic five minutes ago, rushing to an appointment, it's almost impossible to make your mind go blank. That's again, not the point. It's learning to focus. So breathing is mine. Like I, I'm a very big fan of breath work. It's so, it can be so simple. Sitting tall, closing your mouth and just taking a few slow, deep breaths through the nose, slowly and deeply, maybe even following, tracing the pathway as the air goes in the nostrils, down the windpipe and filling your lungs. And then the reverse path, that to me is a beautiful meditation. And then you can add even more to it. There's, there's so many techniques. <laughs> We can make a whole podcast on that. Yeah. No, it's so good to, to hear it. And it's true. And I, I love how you described it because it's true. It's our mind is always there to help solve our problems. And it's impossible. Like you said, to just shut it completely off. And like you said, we, why, why would we want to do that? What's some advice you can give to folks if they're struggling with the negative self-talk, right? And really wanting to begin a relationship with understanding the mind, but maybe they're a little scared, right? To calm down and to listen and to take a moment of pause with their thoughts. I just felt chills because th we're diving deep here. That this can be important. This can be provocative, fr frankly speaking. Before doing anything, there has to be the willingness to be vulnerable, the, the willingness. And there's a little bit of risk involved. Yeah. There's a little bit of risk. And this is personal to me also. I, my yoga teacher since 2014 has been a, a guy named Rod Stryker. Some of you might know about him. He was based in Colorado. Now he's in Idaho. And he helped me understand that I need to be vulnerable. And that was a foreign concept. I'm like, what? No, I'm a dude. I'm, I'm cool. I'm good. I don't need to be vulnerable. But I, <laughs> I realized that there's really no growth unless you can be open. Like you can have an open heart and open arms and open mind. And that is it, being open to, to bringing in something new. Wow. So allowing the space to accept the fact that we may not like parts of ourselves, we may be in a place where we don't want to be acknowledging a, a tough situation that we find ourselves in. The, the very first step is to be willing to take a risk, be vulnerable and to accept. So I'm drawing from several sources here. So Rod, Rod Stryker is in a lineage called the Himalayan masters tradition, and he has a guru and that guru has a guru and I'm one of Rod's students. So I have a lineage through, through that teaching. And then I also am drawing from Eckhart Tolle a lot. And one of Eckhart Tolle's major teachings in his book, A New Earth is called the three modalities of awakened doing. And the very first level of doing anything in life as an awakened individual or as aiming to be an awakened person or walk towards a path of awakening or enlightenment or spiritual growth, take it as you will, is, is acceptance. And at first glance or at first thought, that doesn't sound like anything. That doesn't sound very sexy. doesn't sound like, what do you mean acceptance? If you look at what that word actually means in its totality, acceptance of our current situation in life is creates 100% peace. Let's just be honest about that. If you can accept and not fight what's going on, there is some peace there. 
I said a moment ago, 100% peace. And that's, I, you can take that with a grain of salt. We can dive into that at a different time, but not fighting what is. And so what that means, in other words, is not thinking that you're a victim, not thinking your situation is unfair, not thinking you're being punished, somehow acknowledging or coming to the realization that, hey, I got myself here. I got myself here. And what am I going to now do about it? So again, the willingness to be vulnerable and to say that, oh my God. Okay. And then consciously looking around and seeing, okay, how do I get myself out of this now? So self-talk, right? And then, so there, what are the tools, the, the tools? Uh, I'll pull from the yoga sutras now. Patanjali talks about this specifically. He, he says, if the mind is racing and there are negative thoughts or unhelpful thoughts, it's quite simple. He says, cultivate the, the opposite, cultivate the opposite thoughts. And so that's where positive affirmations come in. And that may seem too easy or too simple. That's Dimitri. Mm -hmm. Cultivate the opposite by reversing the energy patterns that the negative thoughts are creating. It may sound too simple, but it's really not. If you've never tried positive affirmations, it's like a magic pill. It really is. And we can even post some or I can give some, but they're so simple and so magic. And for somehow, I don't know how the technology of it works, but when you repeat them to yourself, either with voice, with vocal cords, or just in your mind, your body and your energy responds. I don't know how it works. It's, ma it's magic or, or metaphysical, but things do change. Excuse me. So that's one of the tools is positive affirmations. So some of the things that I tell myself, I am strong, I am wise, I am enough. Those are three that I say a lot to myself. And sometimes before I teach a class, if I'm a little nervous or teach a workshop, I'm strong, I'm wise, I'm enough. And I bring a little smile to my face and force, and I say this in yoga, in hot yoga sometimes, I tell my students with a little bit of humor, force a smile, force it, just do it. Just turn the corners of your lips up. Again, I don't know why it works, but the energy shifts. You can change your energy. So if there's an abundance of negative self-talk, Ask yourself, am I willing to be open to change? Okay. Can I accept what's happening without thinking life is unfair and thinking I'm a victim? And then can I just try to change my energy by saying some positive affirmations, taking a few deep breaths, forcing a smile? And also yoga asana helps so much. This is one of the beautiful things about a physical yoga practice. When you start moving your body, you know, the physical stuff inside of us, the blood, the fluids, our muscles are moving. That's already shifting. Now that's physiological. You don't have to believe in anything spiritual to change your energy. You can just believe in taking some deep breaths, moving the blood through the body and making more blood flow happen to your brain. Do a headstand, do a shoulder stand. And while you're doing those things, take some breaths. I guarantee, I promise you, I guarantee you with 100% certainty that you will feel a shift. And then there are some spiritual things if you're into all the woo-woo stuff like we are. <laughs> I hope that helps. Yeah. No, that helps a lot. And because I think it's important, right, to talk about the dark side that can happen when we sit with ourselves. And so I'm really glad that we touched upon that because it's very rightfully so. It can be very scary. I remember five years ago, and I'm loving that you're bringing up Eckhart Tolle so much because he helped me tremendously too as I was like, diving deep into all of these things. And even though the, the thoughts would be tough, just knowing that, hey, they're there and doesn't mean I'm disassociating, not at all. It's just helping yourself for a little bit, just separating yourself to give yourself time to breathe. And that was something I learned a lot as I was starting to really dive into yoga and meditation more and because we don't want to disassociate. That's not the idea. It's just helping yourself be like, okay, I'm experiencing these thoughts, but I'm not these thoughts necessarily. These thoughts are coming maybe from something that happened to me when I was a child, maybe from something that happened the other day, but you aren't the thought necessarily. It's you're experiencing it. And for me, that was huge to this day. And I love that you brought up positive affirmations because for me too, that's helped tremendously. There's this song one of my good friends, he wrote it. He passed away last year, but his song is called I Am. Their band called The Leak. And the chorus is I am love, I am peace, I am joy. 
And I recently actually got a tattoo in, in remembrance of my friend that passed. But these words have saved me for sure. And I write them down too every day, like in my journal. So it's so true, everything that you said, Paul, that the power of words can truly save lives. So, so yeah. <laughs> Let me add, because now you're sparking more things to, to share, but yeah, the wor words and anyone who's studied the Bible at all, the, the Bible talks about the word. And now Christianity is just one religious path. There are hundreds, of course. Yoga is not a religion, but it is a path towards union, which at its core, all religions aim to unify us with our source, with something greater. And it's said in many traditions that mantra or prayer or words are the way, are, are the doorway or the portal back in, whether it's a one-word mantra or it's a multi-word prayer or it's a song or a chant or just a, a tone or a vibration. But everything in the universe is vibrations, whether scientific instruments can detect them or your internal awareness can detect them. Everything is vibration. And if we can change our vibrations through words, there's really some power there. There's really a lot of transcendence possible there and some peace. And plus the, the words have associations too. And choose some words that are um, what we, we refer to Ayurveda as sattvic, some sattvic words, love, peace, joy. The word om, the word shanti in Sanskrit. Some of those words are very sattvic, very finely vibrating, neutral, peaceful, and exalted, really. Uh, what I was going to say though, when, when you were referencing Eckhart Tolle, this gets brought up quite a bit when I talk about these things, this idea of disassociation. And you're absolutely right. We, we don't want to sweep anything under a rug and just act like it's not there. That's why acceptance is so huge. Something that Terry and I talk about a lot in our book, and we do reference Eckhart Tolle because he gave us the idea for this. We make a funny little analogy about taking a, a spiritual flashlight and shining that spiritual flashlight into all the corners of ourselves, like the dark corners, the ones that we really don't want to acknowledge and we really don't want to explore because we all sweep stuff under some of our rugs, metaphorically speaking, but we are not going to enlighten ourselves if we're weighted down by baggage that we hide and that we carry with us. So let's shine the, the light of our soul into these dark corners and see what's there and resolve it, even though it's not fun. Definitely not sexy, like taking a fun, hot yoga class and learning a handstand, but the handstand might give you some temporary gratification, but it won't give you everlasting peace. You might hurt your shoulder because you're carrying some karma about something. I don't know. But shining that flashlight is such a powerful practice. And then being willing to see what's there, being vulnerable to acknowledge it, accepting it. Emotions serve a very distinct purpose. And Eckhart Tolle talks a lot about how to understand that the emotional body is not us. It's not us. It's not you and I. We're not even our flesh, our physical body. It's only one part of us. Is it a part of us? Yes, but is it us? No. From the yoga tradition, we are a soul. We are a spiritual, energetic entity of brilliance that is experiencing life on planet Earth in this year currently, in this place on Earth to gain experience, to gain wisdom, to gain knowledge, to learn, to grow. And then once this particular grade in school is done, or this lesson is done, this physical body will end, will expire. Our soul will not, our soul will rest for a while and then enter the next grade in school, come back and take another body of a different shape and size and color and type, different place on earth to learn another few hundred lessons. And if we don't learn the lessons from the past, they're going to show up again. And emotions provide the vehicle to learn a lot of stuff, but they're not us. They're a, a part of our experience. So we don't want to disassociate. We want to acknowledge that they're there, see them, look at them from a different perspective from our soul. If we can view our emotions from our higher self and then decide how are we going to resolve that? What are we going to do through the lens of our soul, not through the lens of the colored emotions? Easier said than done, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I love that you brought that up. I find that ever since I started this path, it's made being on earth 
I'm not going to say completely easy, but easier is, is when I base it on how I used to perceive everyday living and really shifting more into that mentality of lessons and learning. And it just feels kinder, at least for me, it's what helps. And I hope it can help others out there too. But I was remembering, Paul, I remember in my first workshop with you, you mentioned, I believe you mentioned that breath work and all these practices helped you heal your asthma, right? Yeah. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. <laughs> I love that you remember me saying that. And I didn't heal it completely. It's still there. But I overcame a big challenge that I had. I, that's cool. I forgot that I even brought that up. <laughs> when I first got dedicated with a physical yoga practice, I started taking Bikram yoga. And I realized immediately that it was very triggering for me. So if any of your listeners are asthmatics, they, they might relate to this. There's a little bit of, there's a little bit of claustrophobia involved with some asthma, with, with some asthmatics. It, it relates to the idea that it's hard to breathe. And when it's hard to breathe, you feel, oh my gosh, I'm enclosed. I can't take a, my lungs aren't expanding enough. I can't take a full breath. Oh my gosh, the world is, you know, crashing in on me. That was the experience I had physically when I was in the Bikram yoga studio before class started, the door was open. And then when the teacher came in to start the class, the door was closed and the fans turned off. And I felt immediately a sense of like dread. And I realized, oh my gosh, am I going to be able to breathe in here? Because the air it was hot, 105 degrees and 40% humidity. And there's no circulation. Like that's scary to an asthmatic. Luckily, I never had severe asthma. I was, I did, I was hospitalized only one time when I was a kid, but I carry the Ventolin inhaler with me that I use, you know, I used to use three, four times a week. Now I almost never use it. Thank goodness. But that, that experience of sitting in that yoga class and seeing the, the door close and having a moment of freak out. And I immediately went through a little process that I didn't really have planned, but I, in the moment it, I did it, I looked around and said, okay, what's the absolute worst thing that can happen? If I really can't breathe any air, I'll just leave. I, that, that's okay. I, you know, I, I can handle that. So I looked around, I accepted, okay, I'm here. If I have to do evasive action, I'll like just leave. But is that necessary? Am I physically in danger? So I'm looking around and I'm seeing people, like a lot of people that are just fine. And so my brain is fairly logical. So I said, okay, if they're all fine, <laughs> I should be fine. <laughs> so let me test this out. Can I breathe? So I took a couple of breaths. Yes, I can. So this may seem very elementary, but when you're in a state of anxiety, you need that. And this is like self-soothing. And I learned this for myself in the hot yoga room and it didn't cure it right away. It took a few years to not have to take my inhaler into class. I still take it sometimes if I'm having like a bad day or something, but just learning to breathe and calm myself was monumental. And I use that experience every time I teach a heated yoga class, even a non-heated class, I still focus, you know, intently on, on the breath, but in the hot room, we are more in control of our energy and mind and emotions than we think. And yes, of course, if you have low blood pressure, maybe you shouldn't be in 105 degrees working out. Maybe that's not healthy. I'm not a doctor, but most people with who are healthy and stuff can do a hot yoga class and calm themselves. So yeah, I, I did that personally and realized, gosh, the breath is the key. The breath is the key. You calm down and who cares about doing the posture in the mirror? Yeah, I would like it to look cool, but let me survive first. Let me learn how to calm my energy, my emotions and actually take some oxygen first. So I learned it and it was quite simple. The, the freaking breath, expand your damn lungs, take full breaths and don't shallow breathe. And your nervous system responds. It's magic, right? It's magic. It's brilliant. Just one more quick thing on that. An analogy in the yoga tradition that I've learned about pranayama and breath work, how breathing relates to the mind. It's said that the mind and the breath are like two fish. And I did say this in the pranayama workshop that you came to. I might've said it at the very beginning. The mind and the breath are like two fish and one always follows the other. Either the mind fish follows the breath fish or the breath follows what the mind is doing. So considering that relationship, which one of those two fish is easier for us to control? Is it easier for us to control the mind or is it easier for us to control the breath? The answer to me is obvious. It's hard as hell to control the mind. It's quite simple to control the breath in most instances. So if one always follows the other, why don't we start to shape the breath the way we want? And then the mind will follow. And I'm like, oh, brilliant. Shape your breath, your mind will follow. 
And then the, the, that little analogy doesn't say this, but Terry and I do. The emotions, it's not part of your mind. Our emotional body or our emotional vehicle is in a different dimension than our mental vehicle is. And we, we can talk about the koshas or the constitution of man, if you'd like, if you think your listeners might be interested. But, the, but emotions are a reaction of the mind. No, and this might be, again, controversial. This might conflict with something that your listeners believe in. Emotions don't happen on their own. The mind causes them. And it might be a, a microsecond or a nanosecond, but no emotion can bubble up without a thought first. So again, if you shape the breath, we shape the mind, and then the emotions follow as well. Yeah, it's so cool to think of the causal effect. It really is all connected. And I just, I love this. Whenever I've done workshops for kids, I always tell them your breath is your superpower. Really? We have, the, like you said earlier too, the, the power to self-soothe. It's with us always. And I wish we were taught this when we were kids. I know I, I was not taught this. I had to learn this the hard way. <laughs> but I love that you've touched upon that. And I was curious too, could you go a little bit deeper too when it comes to more of the scientific benefits, right? The physiological, the biological benefits of meditating. I know we've, you've touched upon it a little bit, but it'd be, I think it'd be cool to, to hear more of the, for folks that maybe are more intrigued on like the health side of things. Excellent question. And I think it's important to talk about the physiological stuff. Yeah. I, I, I teach the benefits of meditation, breathing, and yoga. I teach them in, in three categories, the physiological benefits, then the um, energetic benefits, and then the spiritual benefits. So let's focus on the physical for a little bit. And Stress release is, is a big one. The muscles simply release, relax, circulation is increased. Even the glandular system, the glands are affected by, the, the glands are even addressed. So all the physical systems in the body are addressed. Most of your listeners probably haven't, well, some might if they study yoga, but there's a text called the Hatha Yoga Pradipika. And that book, can we move him? Yeah. Pause for a second. (laughs) So the physiological benefits are are multitudinous. One of the ancient texts that I reference quite a bit in my teaching is uh, something called the Hatha Yoga Pradipika. And that's one of the seminal texts on on yoga from the physical perspective. The Yoga Sutras that I've been referencing is approaches yoga from a mental calming the mind and meditative perspective versus the physical. So in, in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, the majority of the book is about purifying cleansing and healing the physical body. And there are hundreds of techniques to do that. So in, in addition to the, the obvious things, like when we're stretching our muscles, a lot of people think that yoga is just about stretching and stretching is, is certainly part of it. And that creates healthy muscles, um, healthy joints, circulation. So increasing blood flow, there have been studies on the medical benefits of, of physical yoga and Regulating blood pressure is a huge one. So people with low blood pressure can regulate that. And of course, people with high blood pressure can as well, mainly because we're, bre- we're slowing down the system when we breathe mindfully. Yes, the heart rate might elevate during a vigorous practice, but you're calming the body as well because the breathing cues the nervous system to relax. So we move more into the rest and digest mode versus fight or flight in the nervous system when you take deep, slow breaths through the nose. And that can be done while seated in a seated pose or while flowing through a vinyasa. But when the body receives deep, calm, complete breaths through the nerve, somehow, again, I don't know exactly how it works, but the nervous system responds and says, okay, I'm safe. I'm, I'm okay to release and relax. So a lot of us will notice that our shoulders receive some comforts. A lot of times we tense our shoulders up. Our digestion is helped because when we're super tense and stressed, we don't have, you know, proper bowel movements. Certain postures are designed to compress and squeeze and massage areas of the body. There's a technique called Nauli Kriya, which we worked on like last Saturday in our meditation class at Kintsugi, where you exhale completely and suck your belly in after the exhale. So there's no air in the lungs. You pull the belly in, it's like a vacuum. And then you just move around a little bit and you're massaging your internal organs. So many benefits to the physical body. 
much more than what the common understanding is of just getting flexible and stretching. Yes, your hamstrings will improve. Yes, they will. That's, but that's only one of a hundred different things. Yeah. And sleep will be better too. If the body is healed and healthy and there aren't a lot of ailments in the physical body, your sleep will be so much better. Yeah. There's so many things. Yeah. Thank you for diving into that. And could you touch base a little bit too on the emotional and then the spiritual side too? Yes. This is cool. Um, I, I get to talk a little bit about, I very briefly mentioned a moment ago, koshas and the constitution of man. So in, in the Vedic tradition, Vedic references information passed down through eons in India. The Vedas are the, is the body of Indian sacred scriptures. You probably know that from your studies. And then we have the Westernized teaching and mainly from theosophy again. So I'll reference theosophy. So in, in theosophy, it's referenced as the, the constitution of man. It's the layers of us. Our physical body is one and we have other layers, other bodies that we operate through. And in the Vedic tradition, they're referred to as the koshas. The word kosha actually literally translates to sheath or layering or covering. And there are multiple sheaths that make up a human being. And what are we covering or sheathing or concealing? It's the light of our soul. It's the eternal part of us that is that exists after the physical body dies, after 70, 80, 100 years or more or less. And each of those layers interpenetrates and is counter supportive and intertwined. The physical body doesn't appear at first thought to be intertwined with anything else because our physical scientific instruments, current day, present day, 2022, can't really detect spirit, can't detect thought forms or chakras or prana, but we're starting to actually, we're starting to. EKG monitors regulate things. Scientists do recognize that the body is has electricity and if you're a fan of the Matrix movies like I am, you'll know that physical bodies can be batteries for the machines. <laughs> we do have power and energy. Also, almost every single indigenous tribe or culture has their own unique word for the body's energy. And the one that most yogis are most familiar with is called prana. In the Far East, in the martial arts traditions, they call it chi. And then there are other words. The Native Americans have one and the Polynesians have one. In Hawaii, when I helped teach a teacher training there. They call it mana there. And the Native Americans, it's ni, N-I. There are others as well. I'm bringing this up because it's widely known, even though it's not taught in schools and in current science and, and exoteric mainstream science. So the, the question that you asked, Monica, was how does yoga and meditation and breathing affect our, our more subtle aspects? And so we would call those in Western terminology our pranic body, our emotional body, our mental body. And then in Vedic terminology, the next layer more subtle from our physical would be the pranamaya kosha, the layering of ourselves that's made of prana and energy. And then the next level deeper or more in or more subtle would be the manomaya kosha, the mental body. So in Vedic tradition, the mental and emotional bodies aren't distinguished, but in theosophy and the westernized teachings, they, they are. The emotional body is different than the mental. And I resonate more with that because to me, thoughts and emotions are different. They are different. And again, this might be controversial, but our mental vehicle, the part of us that is our mind that thinks is different than the part of us that feels. So how does yoga and meditation affect those, that? So this is cool. All right. So pranayama is, is breathing techniques, right? Is, is breath work, learning to control our prana through, through breath. So Without putting your thoughts on the breathing process, you're just breathing in physical gases, air, and whatever it makes up air, CO, oxygen, carbon, whatever we breathe in. But when you put your mind on it, now again, this is somewhat esoteric, it's not taught in schools. When you put your thoughts on it, you activate something more than something just physical. You're waking up the intelligence of the energy around us, the prana that comes from the sun, that comes from life, that comes from trees and grass and is always around us. And when you intentionally think about something, you charge that thing with energy. The, if you have ever read the book, The Secret, or watched the movie, or if you understand how manifesting works, or if you've ever had synchronicities happen that you can't really explain that you were thinking about something and then it happens, 
the mind is so powerful. And the mind, by the way, is different than the brain. The brain itself is the physical counterpart of the mental body. The mental body operates through the brain, just like our pranic body operates through our physical body. So when you regulate your breath through pranayamic techniques, you're breathing air, but you're thinking about, you're putting mental energy into the process, activating life force, and you're cleaning your system. You're energizing, you're charging your system. It's like flushing your drain with Drano or something if your toilet's clogged. <laughs> so if your energetic channels are plugged up, <laughs> you can do some Nadi Shodana or alternate nostril breathing and create this flow of energy. You don't have to close one nostril. You can breathe through both nostrils and just feel that you're taking in energy and you're expelling energy. And that is directly affecting your pranic body, which in turn affects the mind and emotions, like I said earlier. So think about how emotions work. Like when you have an emotion, you usually feel something in the physical body too, if it's a strong emotion. And then sometimes there's a thought that says, oh gosh, I just felt this jealousy or I felt this less than, or I compared myself to that person. Now I feel depressed. And then sometimes you feel something else and then it's a vicious cycle and they compound. Well, we have to break that cycle by changing something, by stopping that feedback loop of seeing something, thinking something, feeling something bad, and then getting mad at ourselves for feeling that bad thing and then having it compound. You got to stop that. So how do we that's that meditation where you focus your mind on something sattvic or positive, start to breathe, activate some good prana, breathe, and then your mind and emotions will follow. And then your energy changes. Your energy will literally change. And that's why usually you feel better after a yoga class. You feel better after you've done some breath work or a nice shavasana or a yoga nidra. So that is evidence that you've affected your pranic vehicle and your emotional vehicle. And then the mind, that, that's its own thing. But the, the mind can be affected, of course, by all these things too, like we've been saying, breathing a certain way, focusing the mind. I haven't, I've failed to mention a, a key piece. When you bring a focus, a focal point in, we call that a seed thought or an anchor point, an anchor thought. And it, again, the breath, your heart, a word, love, peace, or joy, the image of a loved one, for example. When you identify a focal point or a seed thought or an anchor, to meditate upon or to focus the mind on, the mind will wander. It'll, it's hard to maintain that focus. This is the practice though. Noticing that you're drifting. So hold the thing in your mind that you're focusing on, whether it's your breathing or whatever it is. And then you'll realize, oh my gosh, I'm thinking about lunch or I'm thinking about my conflict that I was frustrated about yesterday. It's okay. It's natural. The brain has neurons that fire. It's that feedback loop. Just notice it and then just bring your mind back. Again, this is not sexy. This isn't fun, but this is the practice of learning to meditate. The mind wanders, bring it back. The mind wanders, bring it back. The mind, and it's going to happen, but guess what starts to occur? It'll wander less frequent. That's the practice. And it doesn't happen in a day. It happens after a long time. That's how to affect the mind. That's how to affect the emotions and yeah, the pranayama, I, I always lean into a lot of breath work. I love it. Breath work is beautiful. It feels good. It's relatively simple and it's so effective. That's how to affect the subtler aspects of ourselves. I could listen to you all day, Paul. <laughs> awesome. Before we finish up, I definitely want to give you a chance to tell folks where they can find you on social media, website, what classes you teach. If you'd want to elaborate a little bit on that as well. All right. Thank you for giving me the, the opportunity. I'm somewhat active on Instagram, less active on Facebook. On Instagram, it's Vegas Vairagi, Vairagi, V-A-I-R-A-G-I. And what, what that actually means, because people are like, should I ask him what that means? I don't know if I should. It's weird. What does that mean? What, what is he? <laughs> one, one of the hardest things to practice in the yoga tradition, in my opinion, is something called Vairagya, Vairagya. It's again, taught by Patanjali in the Yoga Sutras. Little side note, this is a cool little thing. Patanjali in his sutras, I really like his teaching. It's the foundation for, for yoga. So I keep referencing it a lot. He gives three methods to reach enlightenment. He gives three. And the one that most people know about is the eightfold path called Ashtanga, which means eight limbed or eight staged path towards Samadhi. But he gives two others as well. So it's funny that he calls the eight limbed path 
the beginner version. <laughs> then there's a, a medium intensity version. And then there's like an advanced student version. And in the advanced student version, he tells you to do two things. He says, do your practice and don't be attached to the practice. So Abhyasa is your practice. And of course, he doesn't say what the practice is, because that's for you to find out with your own personal guru. And then don't be attached to it. If you see results, don't be attached to the results that you see. If you don't see results, don't be attached. Meaning, who cares? Do your practice. Are you becoming enlightened? Who cares? Do your practice. Did you have a misstep and have you fallen back a couple steps? All good. Keep doing your practice. Did you grow some psychic abilities? All right, good for you. Do your practice. Like, so vairagya, not being attached. That is hard as hell to do. How do you not be attached? Like we, we want sense gratification, right? We're humans. That's the thing. If you can be unattached and that's different than being disassociated, it's, it's not investing yourself or your worth in any outcome. There is peace there. There's peace. Would you like to have complete peace? If you said no, that'd be odd, right? That'd be strange. I'd like to have complete peace. It's, I don't expect to achieve it in this lifetime. Maybe not. Maybe in five lifetimes I might. But that's why vairagya is such a powerful practice. So one who practices non-attachment is a vairagi. And that's where my screen name or my handle comes from. So I'm someone in Las Vegas who attempts to practice non-attachment to the outcome of stuff. So that's um, Instagram. There's a website. It's newrajayoga.com. And Raja Yoga is Patanjali's teaching. It's uh, newrajayoga.com. And then I'm at a few studios regularly here in town. There's True Fusion Summerlin. There's Kintsugi Yoga. There's Hotbox. Um, there's a couple cool workshops that I'd like to quickly mention. Yes. I would love to mention the one coming up in March. Um, it's a workshop on a book called The Four Desires written by Rod Stryker. And I have trained in this teaching since 2000, let's see, 15. I've had the pleasure to assist him on several of his live workshops. And also my dear friend, Tanya Boyganzan, she leads these as well. And I've assisted her. So I'm leading my own here in March. The Four Desires book is about understanding what our soul really has in store for us. And are we listening? Are we doing it? Or are we ignoring the, the subtle whispers that our soul always gives us? We just don't always hear it. And if we're not listening, how can we hear what our soul has in store? And what's out of balance in our life? Stated another way, how come New Year's resolutions rarely work? <laughs> this book talks about that. So that's a cool workshop coming in up in March. And then my friend who I mentioned, Tanya, who lives in Minnesota, uh, Minneapolis, she and I have the, the great honor to lead a workshop uh, a retreat together in Costa Rica in May, on May 14th for seven nights. It's, it'll be our second one at the amazing Blue Spirit Resort in Costa Rica. That's in May of this year. So please connect Instagram, the newrajayoga.com or one of the three yoga studios I mentioned or the Four Desires workshop or the retreat in, in May. There's lots of cool stuff. Monica, thank you so much. Thank you. It's I'm so happy that we could do this and have more people listen to you. And I, I hope that, yeah, I, I honest, I recommend Paul, great teacher here in Vegas. And if you're new to yoga, I think he does such a good job of really breaking it down in a way that makes sense. And because I think sometimes people might feel a little intimidated and so I really appreciate all the work that you're doing, Paul, in our community. <laughs> Any closing thoughts before we sign off? <laughs> Do your practice and don't worry about the results of the practice <laughs> daily. But no, I, I'm actually serious. I would, I recommend this to, to anyone. If you can commit to a daily practice, it can be way simpler than you might think. Two minutes a day, two. Five is better. 10 might be a little better as well. But don't think you have to sit for 30 minutes. You don't. I don't. I sit for six minutes sometimes, but it's a daily and don't save it for a Saturday. It's a daily and just two minutes, just sitting and breathing. So I can't really emphasize the, the gravity of the positive effects that you'll receive from just doing that every day. And twice a day is better. If you can do it in the morning, first thing before checking your phone, if it's possible and evening before bed, sitting and breathing. So a daily and listening to a yoga nidra recording is even easier because you get to lie down and just listen to someone relax you. Mm -hmm. So daily, simple, right? It's simple, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs>
All right, Paul, thank you so much for your time. And I'll definitely also include the retreat information in Costa Rica and all that, and um, also link his website along with his Instagram. Thank you, Paul. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next time.